most angry about what's happening inside of the covenant community of God as opposed to what's going on outside of the covenant community of God. The temple was supposed to be the sacred place of prayer where people could encounter the living God, the sacred place. It's supposed to be a contemplative place to worship the Lord, and it feels more like a petting zoo. It's noisy, it's crowded, coins are being clanked. It resembles the New York Stock Exchange a lot more than it would resemble a sanctuary. People weren't approaching God in prayer. There's no way you could. They were showing up, it was so crowded. You would show up, and instead of this being a really solemn ceremony, a really solemn day, where you could contemplate what's actually happening, you would just have to show up, be like, I'll take my ox, thank you, and then you would walk it over to the priest, and you would give it to the priest to be slaughtered and pay your temple tax, and then you'd get out of there, because what else are you gonna do? You're not going to be able to really contemplate what's happening. You know, the, the Passover was meant to be this day that they contemplated. Because what happened on the Passover is God delivered his people through a series of 10 plagues. And the last plague was the plague of the firstborn son. And Jesus said, let my people go or you're going to have this happen. And Pharaoh refused. And so that night, and the angel of death went through all of Israel and um, killed the firstborn son of every home. But God made a way for the Israelites to not be affected. He said, but you take, the, take a lamb without defect, sacrifice the lamb, and place the blood on the doorpost. And when my angel sees that, he'll pass over the doors that have the blood of the lamb on them. Hence, we have the name Passover. And it's as if the lamb got the punishment that they deserved. The lamb got the death, and they got passed over. And in fact, the whole entire sacrificial, service, sacrificial system pointed toward this. And it was this that you were supposed to contemplate. When you brought your animal, you were contemplating, I deserve death because I am a sinner, but yet God has made a way for me to not get the death that I deserve. And so this animal right now is dying. It's not just because God's some bloodthirsty God. He, we have this symbolic thing where we're saying my sin is placed on another and that other is receiving my punishment. And if you were in a place like the temple that's so crowded, it's like those Instagram pictures that you have now where people, everybody flocks to the, the national monuments and it's like this is not a sacred place anymore. All I see are people, it's just noisy, it's crowded. If you were in a place like the temple was, that was just noisy and crowded and people were selling things, you couldn't contemplate what was actually being done. This sacred place where you were supposed to meet with God and contemplate that you deserve death, but yet he has made a way for you to avoid that. You should be thinking, this should be me dying. God has had mercy on me. And this animal is receiving the justice for my sins that I deserve. It was an opportunity for repentance, but it had just become an over-commercialized mess. No one's worshiping God here. Do you know what the most popular national park is? It's not Yosemite or Yellowstone. It's the Smoky Mountains. Um, it's, it's the most popular because it's so close to large metropolitan areas. And so every Southerner 
makes a um, pilgrimage to the Smoky Mountains at some point in their life. I grew up in the South, um, been here for a long time now. But, uh, and we, w- we made a pilgrimage to the Smoky Mountains one time. And you get this vision of what the Smoky Mountains are, and it's, it feels cozy and very kind of rugged with the, yeah, it's just supposed to be a beautiful place. But then you get there, and you get to Gatlinburg. And it, it, anybody ever been to Gatlinburg? A few people. It is just an over-commercialized mess. That's the only way to describe it. It is like Ripley's, believe it or not, uh, next to, it's just the craziest thing. There's like 17 flapjack places that you could get pancakes from with fake uh, maple syrup. And it's just, not, it's just not a place that you really want to spend a lot of time. This is what the temple felt like. You were sold that it was this cozy, heartwarming place, beautiful. But then when you got there, it just felt like an over-commercialized mess. When you look at what makes Jesus the most upset, it's this distraction. Jesus wants his people to worship with undistracted and undivided hearts. He's willing to make a scene if that's what it requires. So verse 18, so the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? All right, so they're trying to figure out why Jesus is going crazy and who gave him the authority? Who gave you, who made you boss of the temple? Okay, why are you doing this? Uh, Tim Mackey, the guy who does the Bible project, he says that the temple was like the White House and the Statue of Liberty rolled into one. It was the seat of government for the area, the seat of leadership for the area, and it was also a national symbol. And so this is a huge place. And I just want you to imagine someone goes to one of those places in our society and they start flipping over tables and causing a big ruckus well, what would be our assumption? That the person is insane, right? The mental health issues of some sort. Um, they don't assume that Jesus has mental health issues. They're not escorting him out of the temple. They assume, by the way he's acting and behaving and maybe his reputation that precedes him, that he is a prophet. And they say, okay, if you're a prophet, who, give us a sign. Who gave you authority to do this? And so Jesus Gives, he, he responds to them, and he answers, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, I don't know what the Jewish leaders were expecting. Maybe they were expecting him to take a, a stick and hit a rock and water come out of it or something like that, pull a rabbit out of his hat. I'm not sure what they were expecting him to do, but they certainly were not expecting this. This is the claim that would be used in Jesus' prosecution at the end of his life to show that he was a blasphemer and that he deserved death. This is what got him in the most trouble. This claim, destroy this temple, and again, I will raise it up on the third day. And the the Jews then said to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, sir, and you will raise it up in three days? They were taking him a bit literally, were they not? But, verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. The temple was meant to be the symbolic home of God on earth. It was seen as the place where heaven overlapped with earth. If you think about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth, the place where those two were symbolically overlapping was in the temple, where God reigned and ruled, where his presence was fully there. And so when Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, what he is saying is you don't need to know where I get my authority from. I am the true temple. I am the true temple. I am the presence of God 
on earth. I am fully human, yet fully divine. Presence of God experienced on earth, fully found in Jesus, the true purpose of what the temple was meant to be. Though you might kill me, I will be risen on the third day. And that's just what he did. And after he was resurrected, Jesus actually tells us that when we trust in him and we follow after him, that his Holy Spirit comes into our lives and we're turned into miniature temples ourselves. And so it's not only that Jesus is the temple of God, the presence of God on earth, but Jesus lives with us, that his very real nature and his very real presence lives with us through the Holy Spirit and that he comes and dwells in us. And so not only is he the temple, but each and every one of us, as we follow Jesus, we become a temple for the Holy Spirit. We are the presence of God where God is reigning and ruling in our lives, but here on earth. He lives in each of us. And so if you're a miniature temple and Jesus is in your heart and your life, what does he have to say in the courtyards? What tables does he need to flip over to get your attention? What would he flip over in your life? If Jesus walked into our church today, what might he do? What might he say? Maybe he'd pour the coffee in the middle of the floor, out in the foyer, rip the TVs off the wall, just to be like, hey, that's not why you're here, right? You're here to meet with me. It's so easy to be distracted in a church. Here's what I think Jesus would actually do. He would come in, he would get a large sack of some sort, and he would walk around, and he would say, you know what you need to put in there. And it's not your wallet, all right? Cell phones, please. And he would take that sack, and he would go out into the middle of Broadway and wait until an 18-wheeler tractor truck of some sort comes, and he'd just throw it underneath the tires. He would just destroy it. He would say, my father's house is a house of prayer. You are a people of prayer. I get to live with you. Do you see that you're missing it? All the distraction How do you worship with all the distraction? Jesus wants our undivided and undistracted hearts. Too many of us are happy with the byproducts of Christianity instead of God himself. The invitation of Christianity is that you get to experience and encounter the living God who created the universe and who loves you. He loves you just that simple, who loves you, who forgives you, who loves you, who welcomes you. You get that. But far too often, we're just satisfied in the byproducts and the things that come with it and having a nice community or some good music or some tasty bagels or whatever it might be. That might be why we're at church. You get to be a temple of God. Our souls are too distracted to connect with them. Every Sunday morning at 9.20 a.m., at 9.20 a.m., I get the most annoying notification on my phone and on my watch every week at 9.20. I don't know if anybody else gets the same notification at the same time that I do, but it's my screen time notification. It's terrible. Do you get that at 9.20 on Sunday mornings? 
that's just your reminder that like to undistract your heart uh, as you come into church. We're just gonna say that that's like God's reminder for all of us. I get that reminder and I, I call it my spiritual barometer. How's my heart doing this week? Because I'm distracted. More often than not, okay, I have a hobby that requires me to use my phone, okay? I, I enjoy learning languages. I'm like trying all the time on my phone, but that's a distraction sometimes, is it not? I can't tell you how many times I've like found myself looking at my phone and then wandering to other things on my phone instead of what I'm up early in the morning to do, which is pray and seek the Lord. A lot of times my screen time report will read something like four hours a day. That's embarrassing. That's 28 hours a week, 1,456 hours a year. That's 60 whole days out of 365. That's 16% of my entire year spent looking at my phone. But I sleep for eight hours a night, and so if you subtract those eight hours, that's 25% of all of my awake time is spent looking at my screen. So my screen time app tells me. Did I spend four hours in prayer this entire week? What if my soul was connected to the Lord as often as my fingers were connected to my screen? Why am I allowing the distraction to take over my life like this? Friends, I don't know what is distracting you from worshiping God. Maybe you are smart and you have a dumb phone. Um, I don't know what, where you're at. I don't know where distracted you are. I don't know how much Netflix you're binging. I don't know what, what you have that's a distraction. But here's what I can tell you, is that you're invited to experience God with an undistracted and undivided heart. And that's going to require some of us to look at the areas of unchecked sin in our life and to repent of those things. We have areas of unchecked sin, things that we kind of know but that we've excused. Maybe not even unchecked, excused. Things that we've let ourselves off the hook for. But yet God, he wants more. He He doesn't want the divided heart. He wants the undivided heart. For some of us, it's, misplaced priorities. It's not necessarily that we might be sinning. It's just that we have other things that are important, other priorities that we put in front of, a heart that's undistracted from God. And for some of us, it might just be the distractions, that we need to look at our distractions in our life and to limit those. But friends, Jesus is ready to flip the tables. He is gentle and lowly, but he will get his point across however he needs to. For some of us, we need to hear that, that he's gentle and lowly and that we're invited to come to him. And for others of us, he needs to come into our life and he needs to flip over the tables and pour the money on the ground and say, how have you treated my house like this? My father's house is a house of prayer and you are all his father's house now. This last week at our prayer meeting, and, uh, and, and this, isn't, this sermon's not just a big guilt trip to come to the prayer meeting, okay? Um, but, you know, if you do want to learn how to pray, someone at the prayer meeting this meeting said it's like uh, training wheels for prayer, and I thought that was pretty good. Uh, like, it does kind of, we're like teaching you how to pray oftentimes at the, at the prayer meeting. Um, 
But at the prayer meeting, uh, my friend Jason, who's there uh, often, he reminded me of a good quote. I don't even know where it comes from, but I had heard it before. If you want to know how popular a church is, go on a Sunday morning. If you want to know how popular a pastor is, go on Sunday night. Churches used to have Sunday night services. If you want to know how popular God is, go to a prayer meeting. I just thought it was convicting and, and hard for me. And you, you can just translate that, you know, I don't even care if you come to the prayer meeting. I just want you to pray. That's the thing. And to, to worship him, to have an undistracted heart with him. Corey Tim Boom said, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. And if that's true, the devil's been busy in our church. We're a busy bunch of people and with distracted hearts. And so let's take a moment to reflect, church. What tables does God need to flip to get your attention? How could he even get your attention? With where you are in life, what would have to happen for God to get your attention? I hope that you have a sensitive heart to where he has your attention now and you're ready to give him more. That that attention, you're ready to to give it to him. But for some of us, we have stubborn hearts, if you're like me. Uh, You know, it takes a little bit more communication sometimes to get a point across. You can ask my wife these things. And what would he even have to do to get your attention? What does he want you to do to have an undistracted and undivided heart of worship? Can you even try to find a time this week to have some silence and solitude? without your phone, to have some sort of prayer pattern, maybe even a Sabbath. Each week, we have a sacred meal, and I don't want us to gloss over this this week because this is very similar to what they were doing on Passover. When we take this meal, this communion meal, what we're meant to be thinking is that Christ's body was broken for me, that he got the punishment I deserved, that his blood was shed for me. It is a deep profound, worshipful thing, that Jesus died for you, just like in the sacrificial system. In fact, Jesus is the culmination of the sacrificial system. We don't need to do sacrifices anymore because all the sacrifices were pointing forward to Jesus. And so now we have this sacred meal that points back to Jesus of what he did. And this is an opportunity for us to repent. Jesus tells us to evaluate our lives as we come to the table and consider the things that we need to take off how we can put on Christ. Now, friends, I don't want you leaving here just feeling guilty. The thing is, you are not made right with God based upon what you do, okay? We are all, we could, we could just go around the room, hi, I'm Fletcher and I'm an addict, uh, to my screen. We're all there, okay? We're all distracted. You're not made right with God because you have good attention, You're made right with God because of what Jesus has already done for you. Rejoice because he's done it all. You're welcomed in. But he does want to get your attention. And he does want you to enjoy what's already available to you. Through Christ, you get to draw near to the very middle of the temple. You're not stuck in the court of the Gentiles. You get to draw near into the heart of what it means to be with God. You're not held at arm's length. He's bringing you in, and today that's the invitation. So church, um, I invite you to stand if you'd like and are able as we prepare our hearts to receive this meal and to worship him.
Jesus, we give you our attention. You have our attention, and we pray that you will move and you will work. That somehow the culminative um, amount of minutes spent in distraction this week would go down, and that our hearts would be in tune with you. That we would hear you. God, we want nothing more. God, we are here for you. Each and every one of us, none, none of us would deny a comforting word from you this morning. And God, as we turn our hearts to worship you, we pray that the ministry of the Holy Spirit would help us to encounter you as our living God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.